everybody. Welcome to Narrative Live on a Wednesday, a really exciting Wednesday because we have a lot of new information about the January 6th investigation that we've been doing here at Narrative, but also that's been going on on the Hill. So we'll get to all of that this evening with our two special guests. Aaron Harris is here. How are you, Aaron? Nice to have you here. Hi, Joe. How are you tonight? Joe Dempsey is here as well. Good you guys have been doing phenomenal work. I got to say, I've been following your tweets and your your activity on your feeds. It's been incredible seeing all the stuff you've been uncovering. And there's uh, been some big news tonight about some of the things that we've covered together here on Narrative about people like Ivan Reichlin, but also about the big news, I suppose, of the day over the last 24 hours is that there are now subpoenas out for congressional members. So let's talk a little bit more about what they've subpoenaed of the House here. Do you guys... Uh, have any sense of the extent of the subpoenas for the texts and communications of the House members? Uh, what I do know is there were 11, I believe 11 that went out, 11 members uh, who had communication subpoenas. And uh, it was interesting because uh, Benny Thompson, the chair of the committee, had said that uh, the number of people who, you know, the texts that they revealed in their hearing the other day when they were actually voting to find the Mark Meadows in contempt just today said that uh, those texts from members of Congress came from fewer than nine people and they sent 11 subpoenas out. So let's say there's a pretty strong overlap there, right? Probably. It seems uh, like that. The names, by the way, Lauren Boebert, Andy Biggs, Mo Brooks, Madison Cawthorn, Matt Gates. We know all these names so well now. Louis Gohmert, Paul Gosar, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Jody Heiss, Jim Jordan, and Scott Perry. And some of them, of course, revealed communications that took place on the day when, uh, you know, they were all trying to get Mark Meadows to get the president of the United States to do something to stop this. But others showed that there was a lot of communication, a lot of planning, a lot of organizing on the way into January the 6th, which is quite terrifying when you think about members of Congress actually engaged in a coup attempt. Yeah, it really is. I mean, these are people who are sworn to protect us and sworn to represent us first and foremost. I mean, they're supposed to be the will of the people and, and they are absolutely just looking out for themselves. Yeah. So we'll get more on that as we move along here, because we don't have that much information about the exact tweets that each of them sent. Uh, as we do look for that, we'll, as the committee reveals more, we'll, we'll add that to the show. Now let's take a step back here, shall we? Let's go back to January 6th and look at the whole day completely. Let's take a look at what happened. It's a very complicated chart to look at from the top, but it breaks down pretty easily if you look at it in three different sections here. And I want to spend tonight looking at three basic sections here. The first one is the one on the left, which shows what happened at the Willard and then also down below what Michael Flynn and Ivan Reitland's role were, especially as they connect to Mike Pence. Now, we have spoken quite at length here on this show about the Willard and about the command centers. Now we're aware that there were two command centers or two command rooms in the Willard Hotel, you know, doing different kinds of work. One was doing the legal work. The other team was doing a more political work. But still, they were in communication with the president during that day. And I guess it's interesting from here to go to ask, you know, one of the people identified today in a Reuters article as being one of the key people around Michael Flynn, who's been pushing the stop the steal agenda, the fraud agenda, is a guy named Ivan Reichlin. We introduced him to you quite a while ago, and he's an interesting character indeed. Aaron, you've been looking a lot at him and explaining to your audience on your feed uh, who he is. Why don't you tell us more about who Ivan Reichlin really is? It's an interesting story. So he uh, certainly is, uh, you know, part of the Flynn network. But further back than that, you know, his family is originally from uh, the former Soviet Union. I, I'm not sure exactly when he moved over here, but, you know, he's an American, but uh, his family is from the former Soviet Union. And uh, he joined the military. Uh, I think it's worth noting, I don't really want to dwell too heavily on Russian connections. And, you know, I think it's worth in passing mentioning that uh, at one point he tried to crowdfund a uh, movie about Vladimir Putin that sort of lionizes Vladimir Putin. So I think that's relevant. And 
served with when uh, Laughlin was serving, and uh, we later learned that he was also in DIA at the same time that from DIA, uh, he remained on for a little while longer. The first interview that I'm aware of with him was on, uh, I don't remember if it was OEN or Newsmax back in June 2020. And at that point, they introduced him as a friend of the Flynn family. Uh, we also learned that uh, he was an employee of Flynn at, around that time as well. And so in the military, over in the Middle East, his, his specialty was irregular warfare. So these are the kind of the folks who find ways to get messages out and find unique ways to run influence campaigns against populations, you know, foreign populations in the field of battle. So just uh, so just explain that to us a little bit more. So he was working in Afghanistan under Flynn or was it just as a, you know, it's just part of the American military, but obviously influenced by Flynn's operations? Yeah, I'm not aware of him being uh, in Flynn's uh, command chain or being mm. directly connected to Flynn while he was over there. But right. so describe his tasks a little bit more that he was doing as a enlisted military person in, in Afghanistan. You know, Flynn worked in military intelligence. Mm. Reichland was, you know, in a unit uh, to, to hear him say, well, you know, he's basically specialized in irregular warfare. This is what he claims. Okay. Uh, and uh, essentially that is, you know, not only military, uh, you know, kinetic actions, you know, in the field, but also running influence campaigns to target populations and then sort of sway populations in one way or the other, you know, into supporting kind of a, a view that's friendly to, to the the goal, the strategic goals we're trying to accomplish, essentially. Yeah. And I don't claim to be an expert in this area, so... Yeah, uh, no, it's, it's complicated to access because it's meant to be right. kind of opaque, so there you go. Right. It is. I would love to have a military expert weigh in a little bit more at some point. Uh, That's a really good idea, uh, actually. We should pull someone yeah. in who can talk about that. That's a great idea. So yeah. go back to him. So he's a Russian-speaking person. He's was in Afghanistan. I'm always surprised by how many of these people land up in Afghanistan or came up from came from Afghanistan. Phil Waldron is another one who served in Afghanistan. Also, we believe worked for uh, directly for Flynn during that period of time at DIA. Is that correct, um, Joe? I know you were looking into that. As you said, you know, these, some of these records are meant to be difficult to see. So not really a confirmation on that in terms of time overlap in the service. Okay. So uh, and then. What do we know about Sam Cashel? I don't really know Sam Cashel very much. Do you guys know about him? And can you tell us a little bit more? Seth Cashel, yeah, he's a captain, and he too is, you know, part of the um, psychological operations areas of the military. Seth Cashel was also somebody who worked for a company called ASOG, Allied Secured Operation Group, and I believe that's Russell Ramsland's organization. Yeah, we learned a lot about these three characters of the last few provided days. Some, Seth Kessler provided uh, affidavits and information for the Kraken lawsuits in Michigan. So these are all former military people that have been identified by Reuters, but also by you guys and other people online as having not only connections to Flynn, but actually working the lie. They were seeding the lie across the country, whether it's part of the judicial process in legal cases or in other political ways, whether there were campaign meetings or rallies. These three, and then of course, Flynn, that's four of them, were using their military credentials, according to Reuters, to further the story. And that there is an investigation into some of them about whether that was a misuse of those credentials by uh, promulgating that lie. There seems to be a lot of murkiness around how the military operated on January the 6th, whether it's the National Guard, whether it's the events around Charles Flynn, whether it's just the general operation of the day. It does seem like there needs to be a lot more answered around the military operation uh, leading up to January the 6th and also on January the 6th. So absolutely. I think, you know, obviously, you know, the change in, I guess, the brass, you would call it, and Trump sort of, I think it was in November, just got mm-hmm. rid of a lot of folks, replaced them with, I think Cash Patel was one and Christopher Miller was another. 
And so there's a lot of questions to still be answered. I think, you know, Kash Patel, I do believe, uh, was sitting for an interview with the January 6th committee. So hopefully there'll be some answers, at least in his testimony. He's the one that's agreed to testify. Ezra Code Watnick has spoken at length about this, but we don't really believe much what he says. It certainly seems to me like an agent from another country. And these other characters are really interesting. Some of them have pro, uh, I mean, you can only call them really racist views. Others have appeared on RT at various times and Russian television. So they're all sort of questionable. But it does, you're absolutely right. When they moved in that new top brass at the Pentagon, that really sort of signaled that there was going to be a, a tolerance, perhaps, of any sort of action after January the 6th. Would you say that's, that's accurate, um, Aaron? I would even go back a little bit further than that. I personally, you know, one of the first, uh, I don't want to say kinetic, but one of the first overt kind of moves in my mind is when five days before the election, Trump actually moved one of his White House counsel attorneys over to the GSA, the General Services Administration, where Emily Murphy is. And if you'll recall, immediately after the election, Emily Murphy started refusing to ascertain Biden as the actual nominee. And as the uh, president-elect, right? And uh, it was a fellow named Trent Beneshek who moved from the White House counsel's office to become the general counsel for Emily Murphy. Right. And, right. Then, you know, and then the reason I think this is interesting is because it could, she, she continued to refuse to ascertain Biden until she eventually was forced to after a ton of public pressure. I think it was November 27th, the evening of the 27th. And then the very next day after she finally did it, and, and it was interesting that in her ascertainment letter. She, it was a very strange, it was a really weird ascertainment letter, right? Cause she made it sort of personal and sort of like this victimhood, you know, narrative. And, and it was very, made it, uh, I think conspicuously, she was very conspicuous about yes. that she was not pressured by the white house to do this. Mm-hmm. And then the very next day, Trump actually moved cash Patel into the role. Cause he was already at the OD, but the very next day he moved cash Patel into the role that was the liaison between the transition team and the DOD when they further started blocking at. And so you could see this kind of through line where starting from that date, they're blocking the Biden amendment from seeing what they're doing, especially at DOD and the Pentagon. There was a point also where um, acting Defense Secretary Miller essentially released a statement and said right before Christmas saying, OK, now we've all agreed to go on a break for the holidays. And Biden transition team were like, no, we we didn't agree to that. No, you know, we only right. agreed to the base. that would put them at like January third, you mm-hmm. know, third or fourth uh, before they can resume is, you know, very interesting, I think. And you know what's too what's interesting just to sort of build on that. It seems to have continued even past that, right? Because even after the election, you remember that McConnell would not allow Chuck Schumer to really, you know, get his people and committees that they wanted so they couldn't get the Biden agenda off the ground and running. And then they also, Biden doesn't have his ambassadors all confirmed. So even now the Republican Party is sort of still blocking transition to the Biden administration. We're already a year into it. Yeah. I I do think the military thing is particularly important for people to understand because what you're pointing out to Aaron is that, you know, the military may not be partisan and they're certainly not allowed to be partisan, but they might be a certain factions of it, which are supportive of this idea of a coup. I mean, it seems to me that there were thousands of people who showed up on January the 6th. Some of them were military personnel. Some of them were veterans, but still part of the military infrastructure. And there they were, you know, committing a crime and the military seemed to let them do it. And then at the same time, it seems that there's been this sort of tacit agreement among some of the people in the military that let them do it, that this thing would be allowed to go on. 
And that to me is very significant because of what you're pointing out to, which is right all the way up to inauguration day, there was not a lot of cooperation between the Department of Defense and Biden. And that to me is very tricky uh, for the current administration to deal with because we still have the same leadership in place there. Part and parcel is, you know, when Miller, acting SecDef Miller, um, he actually issued that memo on January 4th, essentially nerfing the guard and, and making it so that they couldn't really do anything. And they actually had to go directly to the attorney general and himself to to even deploy in defense on January 6th, you know, um, you know, they were specifically talking about January 6th and setting up rules of engagement for January 6th in this memo and largely disabling them without, you know, uh, some kind of direct confirmation. And um, I don't think we're sure still where McCarthy was on that day. And the commission is not looking at this. As far as we can tell, I've seen not, not many releases from the Jan 6th commission about what the military was doing that day. Am I wrong there? Or is that actually being studied by them as well? I haven't seen a ton on that uh, myself from the, the committee. No, they've they've largely been working up, uh, you know, from the bottom, uh, you know, if the people actually were at the Capitol and working up from there and the paramilitary groups who were involved and they're obviously working their way up towards, you know, the Flynn Network kind yeah. of group that we've been talking about. But yeah, you're right. I haven't seen anything specifically related to um, military. No. And early on the January 6th, Benny Thompson, he did an initial request for information, named a number of folks that were at the Department of uh, Defense as well. All right. That's a good point. So they are looking at it. Hopefully we'll find out more of what they're, they're up to. So let's get back to Reichland. He's an interesting character, obviously. He comes from the Soviet Union, speaks Russian, but, you know, lots of people come from the Soviet Union and speak Russian and are good American citizens who support the American system. He might be a little bit different, though. For one thing, he still speaks Russian to this day to people, even when he's canvassing for voters, uh, for various politicians. I, and I think this tape is just really interesting to look at because it just reveals, um, you know, how comfortable he is in Russian, at least. So this is him uh, during the recent Virginia election campaign, doing the work that, you know, you'd expect people in the Republican Party to be doing and uh, canvassing for votes, meeting a Russian voter along the way. And we also showed you recently this tape. If you remember this, this was him going to visit with a politician, Chuck Smith, in a kind of a weird interview. He's talking about how people are suddenly talking about voter fraud and encouraging this politician to sort of come out of the blue and discuss voter fraud, even though that really wasn't what most people were talking about at the time. So there was, let's take a listen to some of this. Oh, we have, election. Oh, we have to audit. I, I mean, you can't have integrity if you can't audit. We have a constitution, we have laws, and rules and laws control. If there's ever a doubt, then you have to have a play-by-play picture of where to go from here, and you do that by audits. Uh, the integrity of our system, our oath, and everything that we believe in relies on things functioning as they should. One vote, one person, one person, one vote. If there's anything contrary to that, if there's any question about that, you need an audit trail. So I don't know what Chuck Smith really believes, and I should probably call him and ask him, but let's assume that he believes all of this to be the case. You know, it didn't seem to me like there was a groundswell before these four people, Flynn and, and Reichland and the other two came out to support the fraud allegations. It seems to me like that was the genesis of it all, is what I should say. That's where it began. It didn't sort of originate from a groundswell of angry voters. It originated from the four of them and, of course, from Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, I would say that they were kind of uh, the spear tip for a, a big part of this operation, right. right? And we do know that, yeah, we do know that there was a CMP meeting as early as February of 2020 where they began talking about 
influence campaigns that they could wage against state legislators about how to handle electors and things like that, because they were already essentially when pandemic arrived and they could kind of get an idea of how bad it was looking. I thought it was telling because, you know, it's around the same in March, Mitch McConnell started calling federal judges and asking them about maybe retiring early. They were all worried around this time frame. And in the CMP meeting is when they started discussing kind of, you know, waging the influence campaign against legislators. And then in August 2020 is when they really kind of ramped it up. There was another CMP meeting in August where they, this is the Council for National Policy, by the way. Yeah. And uh, where they started sort of throwing out these wild conspiracy theories and making this an existential crisis and saying that Democrats were about to steal the election and ruin America and totalitarian stuff and all this and really just working uh, people into a frenzy saying that we have to do everything that we can to stop it, to stop the Dems from winning the election, essentially, is what they were saying. And Flynn is connected with the CMP. He's been in the staff directories before, and then multiple people around all of this uh, are members of the CMP and related, you know, Cleta Mitchell and Karen Fan, the, the, the Arizona state senator who was running the audit out there. She's uh, on uh, the board of the American Legislative uh, Exchange Council with Cleta Mitchell. And these there are a couple of little think tank type groups. Actually, Gal Suburban, I think, has a pretty good tagline for it. The Institutes of Mass Destruction. <laughs> <laughs> They're like against democracy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're very smart to point out the CNP because that's the origin of all of this. Because in fact, they were so important. You know, when you think about the CNP, you can't ignore the sort of offshoots of it, like uh, the Federalist Society. That is certainly Leo Leonard's group is very much a big part of that. You've got uh, the Judicial Crisis Network. That's Ed Martin's group. You've got Rolf Reed's Faith in Freedom. You've got Lisa Nelson's ALEC. Of course, Ali Alexander is part of that group too, in terms of Stop the Steal. There's the Eagle Forum itself, which we'll come to a little bit later on. Turning Point, which is Charlie Kirk. And then you've got the CNP Action Team, which of course includes Michael Flynn and Jenny Thomas, who's the wife of Clarence Thomas, all involved in the origins, we should say, of how Stop the Steal, at least as it related to 2021, began. And that's sort of, you're saying, began in November. The oranges of it, yeah. The oranges, yes. The oranges. <laughs> Did I say oranges? <laughs> Um, so the, uh, and then we move from there to this field team. Then you got to, you know, on the one hand, you got the legal team doing their thing. You got Sidney Powell and you've got Rudy Giuliani out there filing all these ridiculous lawsuits, none of which go anywhere, but they're filed in, in any event. And they are using these experts or so-called experts on voter fraud, which are people in Michael Flynn's group. It's the people we just showed you, Phil Waldron, yeah, that guy and Seth Keschel and Ivan Rackley. Those are the three people that are used as experts to support this idea that there's voter fraud. So you can sense already that there is coordination from the top down. I mean, you've got sort of a CNP as the head organization, but there must have been coordination between the legal team and the intelligence team or whatever you want to call them in order to come up with this, the actual tactics to bring this in front of the public, which they did through the courts and other ways. They did. And Rudy Giuliani brought into a hearing in Georgia. Phil Waldron was uh, speaking in front of like their state legislation. Uh, there was a group from their state legislature that he was able to speak to. And he testified basically right after Rudy Giuliani. So he and Rudy Giuliani were there. They were both there in Pennsylvania together as well, talking about election fraud and computer hacking and vote machines and, and all sorts of things. And then you've got Reichland going out there and talking about this thing called the Pence card or Operation Pence card. And 
you're so good at explaining it because I find it kind of complicated, but why don't you tell everyone what the Pence card was and how it played into January the 6th because it was such a critical factor. And then I've got that clip you asked uh, us to pull so we can play some of that as you set it up. Yeah, so it's it's really interesting because everyone or most everyone's familiar with the Eastman memo, which is essentially their quote-unquote plan for having you know Mike Pence be the linchpin for this entire situation, right? If they can get like state electors to send alternate slates and, and kind of protest, you know, certain states, just enough states, right? None of this is actually about voter fraud. It's about some very specific states that it would take for Donald Trump to win the election. Those are the ones <laughs> they're concerned about, right? And, very specific, uh, so, yeah. And so that's what the Eastman memo laid out. And it's interesting that Ivan Reichland, even prior to the Eastman memo, on December 23rd, the world kind of learned about this thing called the Operation Pence Card because Donald Trump retweeted Ivan Reichland on Twitter and laid out, which who, who laid out this Operation Pence Card on there. And that was kind of the beginning of uh, Trump's pressure campaign against Pence, right? Right. And John Eastman was on vacation at a family home. I, I want to say Florida, but I can't remember. But the very next day after Trump retweeted Reichland and the Operation Pence Card memo, he got on the phone you know, he called uh, Eastman on vacation and talked to him about it, right? And then lo and behold, not much later than that, we see that Eastman has sent this memo basically mimicking what, what the Operation Pence card was. Let's take a listen to this clip. This is him talking to Jerome Corsi, of all people, and describing what the uh, Pence card would be like and what, how it could be played. Immediately after the election on November 3rd, I saw the shenanigans going on just like everybody else. And I decided Philadelphia is fairly close. I live in Northern Virginia. So I deployed and volunteered to support lawyers for Trump and try to see where I could fit in to provide value with the Pennsylvania issue. And I saw that things were going there with you know Giuliani, Pam Bondi, and Corey Lewandowski. And I thought, why not, why not step back? Because I think there are plenty of attorneys out there to do the actual litigation, which is not my personal area of exp- expertise. Mine is more strategy and big picture. So I stepped back, uh, applied my background as a uh, you know, officer in the special forces where the main mission of in the green berets is to do what's known as unconventional warfare. And really what that is, is counterinsurgency. And that's essentially what we're, we're seeing here in the United States where we have potentially foreign actors that are funding, training and equipping U S personnel in the form of these terrorist groups that are anarchists throughout uh, liberal cities that are trying to overthrow a duly elected government, which, as the Constitution states, uh, the president is still the president until, at the very least, noon uh, on January 20th. So I'm in a position to bring that expertise on the legal side, as well as on the counterinsurgency subject matter expertise side, fuse them together to come up with a political strategy within the framework of our laws to defend against the coup. And with that, that's what, that's what motivated me. I've sworn to take the oath to defend our constitution numerous times in the military. I've served 23 years and uh, it's just transitioned now domestically. Sounds like a confession to me. I mean, this is remarkable uh, video that you found uh, because he's really describing what happened ultimately, what they were trying to do ultimately. And he's describing his own role as a strategy person, as a person who's coming up with this. Uh, you know, it's strange because he's not really part of the 
Trump world per se. He's Trump of he's Flynn's world. And yet here he is, this guy who, who comes from the Soviet Union. And I know you have concerns about mentioning too much of the Russian background, but I, I remember, you know, I, I find that amazing that he would have done that. He's a Russian, uh, comes from Russia and in fact has a produced a, did you say a documentary about Putin? I mean, these are kind of crazy things for an American to do. I, I don't know. To me, it seems strange if he's the guy who's also happens to be running a coup in order to keep Donald Trump in power, who also happens to be a Russian asset. So what do we make of this tape? Tell me what your thoughts are, uh, either of you. Well, I think the most interesting part is the very end where he talks about his military experience and his special operations and waging irregular warfare and counterinsurgencies and all these things that his specialties are and how he essentially plans to overlay that with a legal strategy and his, his legal background. Mm-hmm. And he's basically telling us what they were doing. But at mm-hmm. the very end, you hear him say he took all that experience and now just transitioned it domestically. That is, in my opinion, a key because everything in, you know, in the Army Manual about asymmetric warfare it says that this is never to be used against American citizens, right? This is right. all only to be used on the battlefield, right? The other thing is... There's sort of echoes in there of Robert Patrick Lewis, right? I mean, he's talking about mm-hmm. Green Berets, talking about unconventional warfare. But if you look at the date, it's January 4th. It's the same day right. as Aaron mentioned earlier about Chris Miller memo. Right. Same day. There's a, a lot of interesting coincidences that happened during those days. We're going to go into a little bit more about what the Reuters is called the election foxhole. And essentially, this article lays out an interesting timeline. But the one I find, the piece of it that I found so interesting was this, that on November 25th, wearing a blue jacket, blue shirt, striped tie, and blue COVID mask, Waldron appeared in person at the Pennsylvania hearing to air his fraud claims. He cited his military credentials. I'm a retired army colonel, 30 years, he said. Then he claimed all the voting machine technology in the United States could be hacked. Our experts and other academics, Waldron continued, believe that up to 1.2 million Pennsylvania votes could have been altered or fraudulent. Only a detailed forensic analysis of the actual machines and software will truly show how many Pennsylvania citizens have uh, had their civil rights violated. At the end of the hearing, President Trump joined in on the speakerphone. I've been watching the hearing on OAN, the far-right television news channel, Trump said. I'm in the Oval Office right now, and it's very interesting to see what's going on. Waldron said he visited the White House later that day with Giuliani and others. That was great, he said, Trump told them. The White House focus turned to pushing Republican legislatures in Pennsylvania, Arizona, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Georgia to replace Biden electors with those for Trump. That whole strategy started from the Pennsylvania hearing, Waldron said. That same day, Trump pardoned Flynn in the Russian inquiry. This is really telling stuff. I mean, the the involvement of Donald Trump, firstly, watching it on OAN, which is just, you know, pushing this this incredible conspiracy theory 24-7. And he's watching it. He's watching this, these, his own team pushing it in front of this committee uh, and then personally meeting with them later on that day. That's a, that's, that's quite remarkable. It is telling. There's just so much that overlaps. It's really something. Yeah. And then, of course, we lead up to the point where Flynn is pardoned on the same day. And what Waldron is also talking about there is that that's when they started the strategy of going after all these states. It was all about Pennsylvania, that it began there and then sort of funneled out to the, all these other states. And it's interesting because Pennsylvania keeps showing up, you know, no matter what we try and, uh, and do on this story, Pennsylvania seems to be the core of where all of this took place. So uh, I'm going to talk about another piece of the Pennsylvania story in just a second. But uh, any other thoughts on Waldron, on Flynn, on Reichland, on, on how this whole influence campaign came together from either of you guys? Why don't you start, Aaron? Well, I think there's still some kind of some open questions. Uh, obviously, there's still a lot we don't know. As you said, I mean, what's important is we see these guys sort of waging this influence campaign 
just to go back to what the Army Field Manual says psychological operations are, mm-hmm. uh, the Army Field Manual describes it as, quote, to influence their emotions, motives, objective reasoning, and ultimately the behavior of foreign governments, organizations, groups, and individuals. And so that's what Walter specializes in, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it sounds a whole lot like the influence campaign that they were waging against, you know, the American people and legislators themselves in various locations. And I think that's really interesting. And so I still think we see these individuals, but we also kind of have to see the network that they're a part of and ask ourselves if they are running this sort of operation, then who is supporting them and who is kind of behind them and, uh, you know, kind of pushing them uh, to do this. Right. I don't don't think we're dealing with yeah, I don't think we're dealing with a rogue couple of people out of the military who just decided to try to overturn an election, right? Absolutely so. not. Yeah, it seems like a much bigger thing. A couple of days ago on Telegram, Reichlin actually sort of tried to get ahead of the story a bit. He wrote this very long sort of, hey, you're going to hear some things about me and it's all fake and don't pay any attention, you know, kind of like don't look over here. One of the things that he referenced was being in New Hampshire. He had gone to New Hampshire to meet with a group called New Hampshire Voter Integrity. Mm-hmm. And in so doing, he said, I've said some things in that meeting that you might hear uh, that may be you know, taken out of context. I was there in my personal capacity. Mm-hmm. So he was really trying to get ahead of some story. And mm-hmm. it may be this Reuters one and whatever might be to come further. Yeah, he called it a hit piece. It doesn't sound a like hit a hit piece. piece, but it's certainly a very yeah. uh, elaborate and very accurate looking uh, timeline of events which seem very accurate and certainly portraying him in a very guilty light. We also know that Flynn and Reichlin were in D.C. on January 5th and 6th, but we don't really know anything about or much about what they were doing that day. We did actually manage to find out that, you know, there's this tent set up, I believe it was on the 6th, that had, uh, you know, various uh, GOP folks in there preparing for the rally and everything. And we actually caught a glimpse of uh, Reichlin's head, uh, Reichlin moving through that tent. So, Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, we did catch him in one of these uh, places where the movers and shakers were. But so far, we we don't have any confirmation that he was like in the Willard or, you know, these other places. So I, I, it'd be really interesting to find out what Flynn and Reichland's activities were on that day. Indeed. And we're going to talk a little bit more about some other people who, and what they were doing that day right after this break. Hey, everybody. Thank you for supporting Narrative and for supporting our sponsors. I want you to meet the founder of Moink, an eighth generation farmer who was featured on Shark Tank. Time for breakfast. My name is Lucinda Cramsey. I was born on a farm and raised on a farm, and I'm an eighth generation farmer. I wanted to give farmers the opportunity to be financially independent outside of big agriculture. You can see why I selected Moink as a sponsor for Narrative. It's good for you and it's good for local farmers. Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken and wild-caught Alaskan salmon direct to your door, helping family farms become financially independent outside of big agriculture. Their animals are raised outdoors, their fish swim wild in the ocean, and Moink meat is free of antibiotics, hormones, sugar, and all the other junk you find prepackaged in the meat aisle. Sign up at moinkbox.com. That's moinkbox.com slash narrative to get a year of bacon for free and then pick what meats you want delivered with your first box. Change what you get each month or cancel any time. And you don't have to take my word for it. Narrative viewers get so excited about their moinkbox arriving each month. They tweet at me telling me it's moinkbox day at their house and keep doing that. I really enjoy those. 
Moink meat is so delicious. Narrative discerning viewers love it. And I know you will too. Get Moink Box right now. Join the Moink movement today. Go to moinkbox.com slash narrative. That's N-A-R-A-T-I-V, the way we spell narrative right now. And listeners and viewers to this show get free bacon for a year. That's one year of the best bacon you'll ever taste but for a limited time. Spelled moinkbox, M-O-I-N-K, box.com slash narrative. That's moinkbox.com slash narrative. Hey friends, thank you for supporting Narrative and our sponsors. What's easier than opening a can of cranberry sauce? Getting free life insurance quotes with Policy Genius, of course. If you're looking for something to do while the family is running a turkey trot, you can be just as productive by comparing quotes from top life insurers with Policy Genius. Why Policy Genius? Well, Policy Genius makes it easy to compare quotes from over a dozen top insurers all in one place. And why compare? Well, you could save 50% off more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. You could save $1,300 or more per year on life insurance by using Policy Genius to compare policies. The licensed experts at Policy Genius work for you, not the insurance companies. So you can trust them to help you navigate every step of the shopping and buying process. That kind of service has earned Policy Genius thousands of five-star reviews across Trustpilot and Google. And eligible applicants can get covered in as little as a week thanks to an award-winning policy option that swaps the standard medical exam requirement for a simple phone call. This exclusive policy was recently rated number one by Forbes Advisor, higher than options from Ladder, Ethos, and Bestow. This is how it works. Getting started is really easy. First, you head to policygenius.com. In a minute, you can work out how much life insurance you coverage you need. And from there, you can compare personalized quotes to find out your best price. It's as simple as that. When you're ready to apply, the Policy Genius team will handle the paperwork and scheduling all for free. Head to policygenius.com to get started right now. Policy Genius, when it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. Indeed, and talk about getting it right. We're getting it right all about January the 6th today. We're going to keep unpacking what has been an interesting conversation so far about how these various forces came to influence that day. Now, there's another force I want to talk about on that day. And we started off the season with a conversation about Charles Bowsman, who was a, a editor of a Russian insider newspaper or online publication that seemed to be very pro-Putin and for the last few years has been operating out of, you guessed it, Pennsylvania. And, uh, he turns out to be an interesting character because he was there, as we found out later on, on January the 6th, when we were able to identify him on tape of events at the Capitol. So let's take a look at the tape uh, of him at the Capitol. On the other side of this, we'll explore some of the new information we have about him and how he connects to January the 6th. This is the original tape that we had.
And that's a separate shot from a different camera confirmed. USA! 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 It's quite possible that he is a uh, legitimate journalist and he's doing all this work because he really believes in a white nationalist Russia and he cares so much about what America cares about that and thinks about that. But to me, it seems like, you know, why is this guy there? Like, I mean, why is there a Russian journalist getting the best access possible of the day because he happens to be part of the uh, team that broke into the uh, capital? It seems unusual that he's there. Any thoughts on him from you two? I do think it's interesting. I mean, you know, while I, I try not to overplay or focus too much on the, you know, the Russian aspect of all this, it's very, you know, it's undeniable that there were uh, some interesting, you know, Russia and Russia related characters on the ground that day and um, kind of connected to working with some of the players at the top level that were involved in all this, too. And that, that is yet another one. I hadn't seen actually that footage before. I didn't realize that somebody had spotted Bowsman inside the Capitol that day. That's yeah, that's our, that was us and our team that did that. Uh, um, and it was really interesting that uh, they were able to identify him through various cameras. And then we were able to get confirmation as well, independently from someone else that he was there. But there was also him confirming the other day to a local Pennsylvania journalist that he attended and says he was just there as a journalist covering the story. It's far-fetched yeah. because on January the 3rd, he was meeting with the Moonies and the weeks leading up to that in Pennsylvania, he was uh, you know, one of the people at various events, arguing that, that the uh, Pennsylvania vote should be recounted. So, you know, he's certainly not just an, you know, an accidental journalist. He's, if anything, an activist journalist who was pushing for a recount of the Pennsylvania votes. And so far, there's been over 700 or so arrests of people who were inside the Capitol, and he's not one of them. Well, he's not here because he left. He left on January 7th. Uh, he, he sort of skipped he had, out. He had a deadline for it. <laughs> well, he actually left the Christmas lights up at his house, apparently, and they just skipped town. So, you know, another good indication that, you know, he might be more than uh, just a regular journalist. Of course, funding something like that is quite expensive. So I assume, and we now know that there was a lot of money that came from other places. We'll get into that in just a second. Because Bowsman is a really interesting character. He's much more than just a journalist. He had this barn, which we have been reporting about quite a lot on the show. And that barn was the place that the National Justice Party, which is the neo-Nazi party of America, basically had their founding meeting. And many people speculate that, you know, he was more than just a place. It was more than just a provider of a place for them to have their meeting. He also published in various places, very many white nationalist sort of thinking. And he's more of an organizer, I think, or a kingpin of the white nationalist sort of movement leading up to January the 6th and their involvement in January the 6th that we realize. And I know this is not either of your areas of specialty, so I won't push you on any of these, but I will let you hear him talking to a podcaster about why he thinks there's such an affinity between Russia and the white nationalist movement in America. The people, Russians here are very, you know, nationalistic about Russians as a as a race and as an ethnicity, and um, they've got a lot of other ethnicities in the country, but um, they don't have any problem with saying we don't want them to be in control or want them to be too many of them, and we want this place to be white and Russian and Christian, and you know, for us white Russian Christians. Thank you for spending your time with Narrative, and stay tuned. There's much more to this conversation in our next episode. Narrative is made possible by viewers and listeners like you, who join at patreon.com forward slash narrative. Join today and support truly independent journalism. Patreon.com forward slash narrative.